Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. What happens in the oceans doesn't stay in the oceans. Spate of new studies finds climate impacts are escalating. Forest Service bans logging in Alaskan rainforest again. Plus, it is now 90 seconds to midnight. Scientists move metaphoric doomsday clock closer to catastrophe. All of that metaphoric doomsday and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Xbox has also announced they're going woke too, and mm. you know, because of climate change, mm-hmm. that they're adding a new feature to their default setting. And it will turn off after so long to save the environment, the power. It automatically turns off when you're not using it to save energy and save you money? Sounds terrible, Fox News. That's going woke? I'd say don't change, but I know you never will. This is your Green News Report. Ted Cruz writes on Twitter, first gas stoves, then your coffee, now you're gunning for my Xbox. (laughs) Isn't it crazy, though? Okay, Desi Doyen, let the metaphorical doomsday begin. (laughs) Yes, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock to 90 seconds to midnight this week. That's the closest that the metaphoric measure of existential threats to humanity has ever been to disaster. Board member Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, said the new clock time reflects increased nuclear risks from Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, of course, climate. The illegal invasion of a sovereign state by a nuclear-armed permanent member of the UN Security Council, together with the acceleration of the climate crisis, explains why the clock has now been moved even closer to midnight. Well, we know why it's been moved closer to midnight. Only question is, what the hell is anyone going to do about it? The scientists also cited the lingering pandemic and the breakdown of global norms and the institutions needed to address risks as putting humanity at greater risk of self-destruction. Other than that, everything is fine. And a series of recent studies this month underscore the escalating dangers of man-made global warming. First, researchers with Carnegie Mellon University found that the world's glaciers are shrinking and disappearing faster than predicted, so much so that even if governments meet ambitious global climate targets, the world is still likely to lose half of its glaciers by 2100 with substantial impacts on global sea levels and population migration. Mm. A second study has found that the oceans last year were the hottest ever recorded since comprehensive records began in the 1950s. It also confirmed ocean warming has accelerated since 1990. The oceans absorb about 90 percent of the excess heat trapped by humanity's greenhouse gas emissions. It matters because hotter oceans turbocharge extreme weather like hurricanes, torrential rains and floods, increase sea level rise and affect rainfall patterns on land. As leads study author, climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann, told MSNBC. Worsened drought, worsened heat, uh, greater heat, uh, worse floods, superstorms. This is the face of climate change. It's not subtle. It's not far away. The impacts are being felt by us now on so, a daily basis. It's simply 
a matter of how bad we're willing to let it get. And it's not just the oceans. A new study this week reports exceptional warming in Greenland, with the Greenland ice sheet hitting its hottest temperature in 1,000 years. The eastern horn of Africa just saw an unprecedented fifth straight year of failed rains, making it the longest and most severe drought in 70 years of precipitation data. I thought you said this doomsday was supposed to be metaphorical. But there is some encouraging news. Oh, nice. Full data from 2022 is not in yet, but according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, it appears that last year was the first year in which the U.S. got more electricity from renewables than from coal. Globally, the world appears to have reached peak fossil fuels for electricity, with wind and solar now the cheapest sources of electricity for 96% of the world's population, according to nonprofit group Rocky Mountain Institute. And finally, Great news. The U.S. Forest Service has banned logging and mining development in more than half of Alaska's Tongass National Forest. The action reverses a Trump-era rollback and reinstates the roadless rule for the Tongass, one of the largest temperate rainforests in the world. It also ends large-scale logging across the entire Tongass, ensuring it continues to provide critical habitat for birds, wildlife, and salmon, and preserves the capacity of the ancient forest to absorb a significant significant chunk of humanity's carbon emissions. Well, that seals it. With all that good news, I'm moving that clock back a few seconds. <laughs> For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, the Twitters, and the Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. help progressive voices support the green news report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate from interfaith alliance this is state of belief radio i'm interfaith alliance president reverend paul rauschenbusch broadcasting this week from new york city this past wednesday interfaith alliance released the comprehensive new report big tech hate, and religious freedom online. As part of that release, we hosted an expert panel discussion that I was privileged to moderate. On this week's show, you'll hear the warnings and strategies the panelists Zeki Barzinji, Lauren Kropp, and Paul Barrett brought to the discussion. We'll also dig into the contents of the Big Tech Hate and Religious Freedom Online report with Interfaith Alliance Advocacy Associate Rhea Coley. You can hear State of Belief on the radio, a podcast on Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms. Every week, I am in conversation with the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. Please subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you have made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance at join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to our panel. The large turnout for an online event just underscored how important the subject matter is right now. 
On Wednesday, Interfaith Alliance brought together leading experts to discuss big tech, hate, and religious freedom online, and I'm eager for you to hear what they had to say. Seki Barzinji is Program Director for Aspen Digital, where he oversees a range of projects at the intersection of tech policy, equity, and justice for unrepresented communities. Lauren Kropp serves as the Anti-Defamation League's Council for Technology, Policy, and Advocacy. Her work includes advocacies to support targets of online harassment and hold social media companies accountable for their role in fomenting extremism, hate, and anti-Semitism and racism. Lauren spearheads ADL's anti-cyber harassment initiative, Backspace Hate. Paul Barrett is the deputy director of the Center for Business and Human Rights at New York University's Stern School of Business. Paul has focused on producing a series of reports on the role and obligations of the social media industry in a democracy, including the debate over the liability of social media platforms for harmful content and the role of social media companies in the intensifying political polarization in the United States. So here we go with our discussion of big tech, hate, and religious freedom online. I want to invite each of you um, on this day, uh, waking up this morning, you know, where the internet is right now. What is the most pressing issue facing uh, us today? What, what would you like to start out with as the thing that you want to be focusing on right now? Um, Lauren, why don't I start with you? Thank you so much. And thanks, the Interface Alliance. I'm, I'm really happy to be here and engaging in this conversation today uh, with my fellow panelists. You know, it is tough to pick one thing to focus on when we're talking about online hate and harassment and certainly extremism as well. The online world is essentially a faster and more connected extension of our physical world. And I think that that is a really important point to revisit again and again, because the actions um, that happen online do have consequences, both online and offline. People's livelihoods and networks, our identities are increasingly shaped by, by our ability to function safely online. And that's why ADL is committed to protecting those rights, uh, just as we have protections in the offline world. We don't want individuals to check their rights before going online. You know, in 2017, ADL launched our Center for Technology and Society to take our 100-plus-year-old mission and really focus in what that looks like in the online world to fight hate and extremism, racism, and anti-Semitism. So what's the one thing to focus on? This might be dodging that question, but I think really it's to ensure that there is a whole-of-society approach to these issues and that that lens of considering the online uh, ramifications and the offline impact of our digital hygiene, of digital abuse, of hate and harassment online, that lens is applied across the board. You know, I think whether it's legislative, education-focused, industry, um, and beyond, we, we really need that to be a lens applied as opposed to focusing on one particular issue. So really happy to be here and engage in that conversation. And at the end of the day, we just, we want individuals to be able to operate safely and freely online. Professor uh, Barrett-Paul, would, uh, would you go next? Sure thing. Um, I think along with uh, Lauren, I'm going to have to uh, engage in some civil disobedience here and not identify one issue. Um, and I think her comment 
um, that thinking about this in those terms will, will actually lead us in, in the wrong direction. It is a hugely complex uh, problem we face, which is to say the unintended side effects of this technology that now is so uh, influential um, for the vast majority of our society. In light of that, I, I want to, I'll bring your attention to a couple of things that I think people are not talking about very much without um, labeling them the most uh, urgent issues. Uh, the, the first of these um, is economics. The economics of Silicon Valley um, has changed radically um, over the last uh, 8, 10, 12 months. Um, an industry which was used to a combination of um, uh, basically free money in the, in the form of, of uh, rock bottom uh, interest rates um, and a generally uh, healthy economy is now grappling um, with a uh, possible recession and rising of interest rates. And you're seeing um, company after company in that area laying off thousands and thousands of workers. Why is this relevant to religion, hate, and so forth? It's relevant because I fear that among the first uh, corporate functions to suffer in this environment will be content moderation operations and general policymaking and enforcement uh, concerns um, uh, that uh, are the best hope, actually, for the form of self-regulation that we need um, in this industry. So to stop anti-Semitism on Twitter, you need people within Twitter who are paying attention to anti-Semitism. But one of the first things that uh, Elon Musk did upon taking over was more or less fire all the people uh, paying attention to these issues, not just anti-Semitism, but um, making decisions about um, what material should be on the site and what material should not be on the site or should be demoted on the site. Uh, similarly, um, my impression is that uh, based on conversations with pe people at Meta um, that I've had recently, um, that the focus um, from the CEO and founder of the company on down that was really prominently described circa 2017, 2018, into 2019 has now largely disappeared. And now the entire uh, organization, Meta, tens of thousands of people, first of all, people are, are worried about the person who used to sit next to them who's now been laid off. Um, but the, uh, the focus to issues of uh, security, safety, content moderation on the site has largely evaporated at the top. And that at, a, at a, uh, an organization that's very heavily influenced by what the leader says um, trickles down through the system and will have, uh, I think, very deleterious effects uh, on the rest of that very uh, influential company. Um, so maybe I'll leave it at that because I'm a big believer in short remarks and lots of Q&A, but focus on the economics. We're dealing with a different industry today than the industry we were dealing with just a year ago. Both Im immensely interesting uh, opening comments. Uh, Zeki, can, can you take it next? Yeah, sure, thanks. And I also wanted to echo my um, appreciation and gratitude for being invited to the space. I'm a big fan of Interfaith Alliance big fan of Reverend Paul and his predecessor. And, you know, I really, as you may have heard from my, you know, bio, this is a, this issue, this set of issues is really at the core of what I, what I believe in and what I'd like to work on. Um, just to kind of piggyback real quickly off of uh, the other Paul's remarks uh, in terms of the economic drivers behind um, a lot of the problems that we're seeing now. Um, there's an article that came out in Wired, I think just two days ago, the author posed, this is exactly how digital platforms die, which is first, digital platforms are good to their users. 
Then they abuse their users to make things better for their business customers. Finally, they abuse those business customers to claw back all the value for themselves. And then finally, they die. These are the economics behind how social media platforms work. And they are the reason why there's economic incentive to amplify, spread, and pour fuel on the gasoline of hateful speech and fire. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, for me, just kind of at a macro level, the overarching issue is that we are experiencing a period of explosive innovation and an, an, an advancement, especially when it comes to, you know, AI-driven uh, technology. The problem is that those responsible for building that future are a tiny select few. And so the innovation that we're seeing really only fully serves a tiny select few. Um, with the most marginalized populations getting even more marginalized with every new advancement. In other words, you know, unless things change drastically, the future that is being decided today will not serve all communities because it is not being built by or with all communities. So even if tech companies wanted to do more to confront the spread of hate, and I have my doubts, um, they're extremely ill-equipped right now to deal with it comprehensively because they have not empowered the most directly affected communities at every step of the product design process. And as Paul said, in fact, they're actually shrinking those uh, those teams, they're shrinking those efforts to actually include those communities in the design of products. Um, and in other cases, they're actually exploiting communities of color. Uh, another article just came out that said, um, you know, chatbot GPT, which everyone is a fan of using now for all sorts of different purposes, that OpenAI, the company that makes chatbot GPT, was actually using Kenyan workers, was paying Kenyan workers less than $2 an hour to actually do the content moderation policies to make chat GPT less toxic. So they were paying below minimum wage African workers to do the job of making that platform more safe. That is not a sustainable, equitable, or justice-oriented model uh, for confronting hate. So I'll leave it at that, but just wanted to say like kind of the fundamental thing behind all of this is the communities themselves are not part of the design process. They're not part of building our future. And that's why the future that's being built is looking more dystopian than utopian. Thank you so much. Uh, I wanna just bring in religion here. Um, you know, this is like a main lens for me. I understand that it might not be a, uh, the primary lens for everyone on the panel, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about the experience of hate of religious communities or religious individuals and the communities um, and how that is directly linked to what you've already been talking about. So does anybody want to address that? Talk about the specifics of religion and religious lived experience online. I'm happy to jump in first and talk a little bit about um, some of the research that ADL has found when it specifically relates to online harassment in, in religious communities. Generally speaking, um, to, to step back for a moment, we conduct a yearly survey regarding the uh, experiences of Americans as it relates to online hate and harassment. And, you know, the trends are unsurprising that individuals are harassed online at alarming rates. Um, but more specifically, individuals are harassed um, 
because of their identity characteristics. And just a few statistics that focus specifically on religion, um, 78% of Muslim respondents this year for our, well, for our 2022 survey, because that's the most recent data, and 68% of Jewish respondents attributed, uh, who experienced harassment, attributed that harassment to their identity characteristics. And 44% of all respondents who were harassed um, due to their religion, were worried about future harassment. I think that these high numbers really illustrate um, the unique and problematic characteristics of harassment and hate online when it when it comes to religion, which is that this is not only about the individual, but it's about the community generally. It's a message that's being sent. And that spike in fear for future harassment, whether online or offline, you know, runs through. Uh, runs through conversations, run through, runs through fear during worship, runs through fear in community conversations. You know, we saw, of course, spikes in Zoom bombings during religious high holidays for uh, all of the major religions and, and you know, hate speech in, in chats uh, during those live streams. Um, and unfortunately, we're, we're, we're not seeing any sort of curtailment or um, or responsibility being taken, uh, you know, by the platforms, or, or meaningful, con um, meaningful responsibility, as as you know, Paul mentioned about Twitter. Um, ADL did uh, a, a little investigation in the two weeks before um, Elon Musk started, and the two weeks after Elon Musk started as CEO of Twitter, and found a 61% spike in anti-Semitic tweets referencing Jews or Judaism. We would have no doubt that those statistics align with other religious minority groups, with other uh, marginalized and vulnerable populations generally, but that's the, those are the statistics we have. So, you know, why, why is this so important? It's a reflection of the, the larger issues, but really it's, it's about communities when it comes to the hate and intimidation that people face when uh, their religious identities are attacked online. And if, if I can jump in, I think that First of all, I think ADL is doing some of the best work possible on on the spread of online hate and, you know, especially how it translates from online hate to real world violence and hate crimes against communities. Um, I would also just say that, you know, we talk often about the intersectionality of identities of marginalized communities. There's also a lot of intersectionality among the people who are doing the hate themselves. In other words, if you are somebody who is uh, anti-Semitic, especially if you're a white Christian nationalist, you're also more likely to be Islamophobic. You're also more likely to be racist and anti-Black. And so there's an intersection of hate there that I think is very important to keep track of uh, and not to view these things as in isolation. Um, because chances are, you know, the same group that's being hateful and spreading these messages does it across groups. There's also, I think what's just as disturbing is the exchanging of ideas and tactics between hate groups, both within the US but also internationally, um, you know, in India, there is an explosion of um, Hindu nationalist rhetoric targeting Muslim minority populations in India and Kashmir, especially also Christian minority populations. Um, and a lot of the tactics that they use to spread um, hate speech and viral uh, uh, video and speech, um, they, uh, they explicitly adapt from uh, white nationalists and white supremacists in the U.S. So there's an exchanging of ideas of how to spread hate and tactics that's honestly, you know, 
it's amazing to watch, but also like so frightening um, because, you know, hate speech and hate movements are not being contained by, you know, borders, uh, by individual country borders. And so I think both of those aspects are important to, to keep in mind when we talk about faith communities in particular. You're hearing the expert panel discussion Interfaith Alliance brought together on the topic of big tech, hate, and religious freedom online with Zeki Barzinji from Aspen Digital, ADL's Lauren Kropp, and Paul Barrett from NYU's Stern School of Business. What are the resources that people like the people on this panel and those of us who, who those who are listening to us, who are committed to a, a truly peaceful and pluralistic, respectful society? What are our what do we what tools do we have at this point uh, in order to um, uh, begin to stem this tide or, or reverse it? Uh, what are where do you place your I know I keep on saying greatest hope, but I know it's going to be holistic. So I'm happy with that too. Where do you place your hope? Where, Zeki, when you're at Aspen Digital, where where do you try to, um, if you want people to really focus on a thing, what do you, where do you want to focus them? That's a big question. And if I uh, figured that out, I probably would be out of a job because <laughs> my life depends on finding more problems to solve. Um, so as, so my job at Apps and Digital is to look at the intersection of tech and marginalized communities. Um, I think what I said in the opening to me is the fundamental problem. It's the lack of meaningful inclusion of marginalized communities at every step of the design and implementation of emerging technologies. A lot of companies have really good like DEI programs and they've got good communications and marketing teams that can engage with communities after the fact. But there is really no concerted effort to bring in these voices at the earliest stage of product design. Um, and that might seem like a kind of dry area to focus on, but to me, it's it's actually everything. Um, because the questions that come up here are like, who defines hate? How, who defines bad content and good content? You know, what is actually offensive and hateful towards a particular community? oftentimes only that community can tell you. And if you're not doing a good enough job of including them in the development of these tools and platforms, even unintentionally, you're going to give rise uh, to the spread of, of, of hateful and especially uh, you know, uniquely targeted content against those communities. So to me, that's the most uh, urgent thing is to radically reshape the way tech companies do product design. There are some companies that are starting to lead a little bit more in this space, um, Meta, for example, has created a product equity team or inclusive product design team. Um, again, with all the layoffs that have been happening, who knows how long a team like that is going to last at Meta. Um, but there's certainly a desire to move more in that direction. I think the problem, like I said, is that as we, we often have heard companies talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion from purely an HR perspective. Like how do we hire more brown people essentially is, is, is what they ask themselves. That's the wrong question at this point. The question at this point is, how do you include communities in the fundamental design of your products and platforms? And that takes something much you know, broader than just an HR approach. And I think that if we can solve that part, it's not gonna fix the problem. It's not gonna stop the spread of hate, but it's certainly gonna enhance the tools that we use to confront the spread of hate. Lauren, Paul, where, where, where do you, um... Play, you know, we all have limited resources and a limited ability to um, to focus our our organizations. Where are you focused right now as far as um, responding to some of what we've been talking about? 
Lauren, if you want to go first. Then. Sure, no problem. I think uh, I think two twofold. You know, like a, there's a, a myriad of, of things we need to focus on, but I'll, I'll highlight two right now. First is um, you know building on what Zeki mentioned, which is this diversification of who is building our products who is creating these spaces and is there a sense of anti-hate or equity by design, just as we've seen a swing towards privacy by design and building, certainly not sufficient enough by any means, but the design feature is important. Um, you know, I'll mention that last year, ADL engaged in um, building an online hate classifier, an anti-Semitism classifier by using both experts and targets of anti-Semitism to help the the AI and machine learning techniques that that drove this classifier and that that um, created um, and uh, allowed us to stand up this classifier. The, if if a small nonprofit can do that, certainly these billion and trillion dollar companies can do better and do more to include uh, a diversified workforce and also communities to help build their products. Policy, you know, important and robust policies are. Are crucial. Uh, Paul mentioned the uh, disbanding of a lot of trust and safety personnel at the major tech companies. That's a huge issue. Um, so it's the combination of policy and enforcement. But at the end of the day, I think a focus that we we cannot uh, look away from, and I know this has been mentioned on the panel, you know, prior to my my bringing it up, is the fact that the business model um, currently underpins and supports the proliferation of a lot of the content that we see. You know, we are, um, we're living in an online world that optimizes for engagement. And often the most corrosive or hateful content is the most engaging content. And that is what creates a system where, you know, platforms can, can take our, our behavioral data and then use that to put more and more and, you know, deeply engaging content, whether or not it is problematic, violent, hateful, um, and then also service advertisements because we truly are the product when it comes to these platforms. So that business model and that incentive structure has to change um, because it is really the foundational underpinnings of the content that we see. Thank you. Paul? Yeah, well, uh, good luck changing the basic business model. Um, you know, there, there's no obvious way to do that um, from, from the outside. And, uh, you know, as long as the business model pays, even if it's paying, even if the, uh, the boom in Silicon Valley has in some ways plateaued, certainly for companies like Meta, where they see their Facebook uh, platform, uh, you know, it, its growth has, has leveled off and actually begun to erode. Um, I don't see um, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg surrendering uh, the advertising and engagement-driven model um, anytime soon. And it's very likely that what they're trying to do is figure out how to do that same model um, in the new uh, world that they're imagining, the so-called metaverse of 3D immersive technology. All that said, I think about uh, this question in, um, you know, in two, two pieces, one self-regulation, the other government regulation. Uh, because we're talking about an expressive industry, um, that enjoys itself a good degree of First Amendment um, protection. It is not a simple thing for uh, government, any, any extension of government, to tell these companies what to do because they're in the business of speech and specifically conveying the speech of other people. But nevertheless, their choices of what they choose to put on their platforms is expressive conduct or editorial control, pulling uh, you know, language from various 
uh, past Supreme Court cases. Um, in light of that, we have to do what my colleagues have said. Private individuals, civic society groups, advocacy groups have to figure out ways to bring pressure to bear on these companies to um, uh, bring light to what they're doing, and frankly, to put pressure on them to embarrass them uh, for the things that they're not doing that they should be doing, um, and hope that through that process, uh, there will be incremental change. There has been incremental change. I mean, you know, content moderation was not taken at all seriously at these companies before the 2016 presidential election debacle. It was only after then, beginning in 2017, that the companies even would talk about that uh, issue publicly, let alone devote resources to it. So things have changed, but not enough. The other piece of the of the answer, I think, is government regulation. Again, it has it's going to necessarily be limited because of the wise restriction contained in the First Amendment on government uh, interfering with uh, speech of private entities, including these companies. That said, there are mechanisms for doing this. Um, my center has done research on and, and has produced uh, some writing uh, on the idea of using the Consumer Protection Authority of the Federal Trade Commission. Um, to uh, enhance the oversight of social media companies. Right now, social media companies um, are an anomaly. Uh, unlike other industries, this industry is just not regulated in any way by the, by the federal government. There's no SEC overseeing equity markets or FCC overseeing radio uh, and cable uh, and, and so forth. Um, it's not easy to cure that problem. It would take very judicious legislation but some of that legislation has begun to be introduced. And sadly, we're going to see that go sort of into remission or, or be ignored in the next two years, at least, because of the Republican takeover uh, of the House. But the concept of consumer protection, um, where you hold companies to fulfill the promises that they've made to consumers in a commercial context, is a, admittedly a limited field, but is one where the FTC has regulated companies in other industries um, and force them um, to fulfill the promises that they've made. In this case, it would be promises that are made, uh, for example, in terms of service or in the publication of community standards. And I can go on uh, in more detail if, if anyone's interested. And I can also put in the, in the chat a link to a paper that I've written on this idea about the FTC. Um, but that's one promising limited uh, area um, where the government could do some good if we could get political consensus in Washington. If I could just add one more thing real quick, you know, I'm always hesitant to place the burden of responsibility on the community that it's itself that it is itself being marginalized. Um, but at the same time, I think just as much as it's incumbent upon tech companies to embed the community perspectives much more thoroughly and comprehensively, I think there's also a gap here where community leaders, like let's take faith leaders, for example, who might be on this webinar, you know, you all understand your congregations, your communities, you understand the impact that hate has on your communities, but you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily conversant in the minutia of how these platforms actually work. And that becomes a problem when we do have advocacy meetings where groups meet with tech companies, but don't quite understand how to articulate the harm that's being done. It gives the tech companies an out to be able to say like, well, they didn't really tell us how to fix the problem, so we're just not gonna address it. So one thing that we're working on at Aspen Digital is to create a program that provides basically a boot camp of how these emerging technology platforms are working and have that boot camp geared specifically towards 
community leaders, faith leaders and civil rights leaders, so that they understand and can become conversant in these issues so that when they do go toe-to-toe with tech companies, it's a more even playing field and that the power balance is no longer totally lopsided. And so I think that is especially needed is for community leaders themselves to understand how these platforms work so they can more effectively advocate on behalf of their communities. Congratulations on that work. It's incredibly important. I do want to quickly address the business model um, discussion because I I do think, and and call me an optimist, I think that's probably why I'm doing this work, but I think that there are moves that can be made, consumer, you know, increased consumer protection, um, you know, regulations, increased transparency to to be able to look under the hood and understand how platform products and policies are are operated and being enforced, Um, considering increased privacy protections, re-looking at the behavioral advertising model and and what is what is and isn't able to be done. I know that there's deep and heated discussions regarding Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and platforms immunity from liability, antitrust issues. You know, we just saw the Department of Justice sue Google yesterday, I think, um, you know, amongst many times prior to that. Um, And so I, I do think there is no one single fix that's going to change the environment it today, but I absolutely agree, certainly self-regulation, certainly communities, but also government regulation. Government does have levers that they can pull on, um, both you know here at home and also internationally. We need to take another break, but up next, our panel will take some audience questions. And later, reporting on big tech, hate, and religious freedom online. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. You'll also find links to the topics we discussed this week, extended interviews and transcripts, and an archive of past shows, all at stateofbelief.com. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, made for such a time as this. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack, what would you do if you were faced with thousands of dollars of medical debt? Would you file for bankruptcy or let the debt go to collections? What help is out there for people facing such difficult dilemmas? Would Medicare for All protect patients from the hassles and financial burdens that ill patients face? Today, we're continuing our discussion with Monique Davis, a nonprofit executive living in Southern California. She was diagnosed with amyloidosis, a rare medical condition in 2016 that required her to have several rounds of treatment and a stem cell transplant. She had health insurance, but the treatments and multiple ambulance rides still left Monique and her husband thousands of dollars of medical debt, relentless harassment from debt collectors, and a poor credit score. I mean, I understand that we have great care in terms of the medical providers, but the business side of it is really complex. There's no school for it. It's difficult, and it makes you feel like a failure. It makes you feel like a failure. It makes you feel very vulnerable, and I don't trust... 
I don't know necessarily that people are set out to hurt us because I, I don't think people get into the medical field to hurt anyone. But I do think that if it's lack of automation or lack of transparency, either way, it's not for everyday people to navigate, which it's supposed to be for us to, to help us, right? And it, it's just not set up and it's not designed for us, for the person that's receiving the care. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Wax wherever you find your podcast. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Paul Rauschenbusch. This week's panel discussion on big tech, hate, and religious freedom online featured Zeki Barzinji from Aspen Digital, ADL's Lauren Kropp, and Paul Barrett from NYU's Stern School of Business. I want to get to a couple questions that that, that have come in. Uh, one is just really, really practical. Aside from quitting Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media, what are the best ways for everyday people or religious leaders or everyday religious folks to pressure social media companies to be more responsible? I'd love to hear from the other panelists, but I'll, I'll quickly mention, I think we have to... We have to think about this in both a micro and a macro fashion. At a micro level, the increased conversations that uh, you know Zeki and, and Paul were both mentioning, um, but also conversations really with our youth being interested in how they're engaging online, not just saying, "Oh, that's you know too complicated," or "What what you know I'm going to bring up online multiplayer games again." You know, what are they even doing? having really open, authentic, and curious conversations with people offline about their online behavior and about what's going on is really important. I think that increased education that Aspen Institute is doing is, is so important because people need to understand the impact of you know, what they're doing. The fact that if somebody is liking or retweeting something, even in rage, even in vehement disagreement, that's actually fueling the conversation. It's, it's allowing platforms to profit off of that content and it's, it's, um, you know, normalizing it. So, so knowing about our digital hygiene, helping and having conversations with our youth, that's the micro piece. And I know that there's more to it than that. And then at the macro level, you know, folks can get engaged uh, you know, advocacy organizations like ADL and, and you know, the great work of, of Stern and of Aspen, you know, we're doing stuff and we want to be able to engage with concerned stakeholders and community members. So, you know, whether that's uh, talking to our lawmakers, whether that's talking to industry, doing it in partnership at that macro level, really, like I said, I'm an optimist here. It really can help us move the needle. Um, maybe not as fast as we'd like, but absolutely it's a necessary conversation. Yeah, and you know, I'll just add to that at both the micro and macro level and everything in between. I think education is the key point, you know, for us as individuals to understand not just the content that's out there, but how it gets distribu distributed, you know, what the incentive structures are. Us just becoming more knowledgeable about how the system itself works makes it, it empowers us to do better advocacy. And so at the micro level, as an individual, you should understand that. And it should also be able to then, you know, understand better what your family's doing, what your uh, children are doing, as Lauren is saying. Um, and at the community level, um, I think Paul, you mentioned, uh, sorry, Reverend Paul, you mentioned, uh, you know, we should be smarter about this, when, it, especially when it comes to like our houses of worship. 
Um, I'll just speak from my own faith tradition. Most of the times when the internet is mentioned in a Friday sermon uh, at a mosque, it's about like the immoralities that exist on the internet. And that's about it. There's not a lot of talk about, you know, the threats, the violence, the hate, and how they directly affect us. Um, and to Lauren's point, you know, we have another program at Aspen Digital where we look at the intersection of youth and technology. And one of the biggest things that we're hearing is youth don't like the patronizing attitude that we tend to take when it comes to online protections, because those tend to look like keep kids off the internet and that's it. And, and, and that's not a sustainable model, right? We have to understand that we have to take a rights-based approach to how we protect kids and how we protect everybody online. And the onus is not on kids or parents to keep them away from harmful content. It, the onus is upon those who are building the internet and building these platforms to build them in ways that are truly um, value the rights of its users more than it does the financial bottom line. Um, so I think that, again, education on all these topics is the most important thing from the macro, micro level all the way to the macro level. I would encourage every major you know, faith organization or civil rights group to really read up on all of these emerging technologies, to become conversant in it before you engage in advocacy, just so that when you do engage in advocacy, you do so from a place of knowledge and impact. Um, that's something that I cannot stress enough. I've been in many spaces where a variety of faith leaders come together to bash Facebook but they do it in a way that is so imprecise that ultimately it does not lead to any kind of actionable change. And it, again, in fact, it just gives an excuse for those companies to be like, well, they don't really know what they're saying, so there's nothing for me to act upon. So that's where I'll leave it. People are interested in uh, you know, uh, educating, particularly younger people. Uh, you know, There is a part of the world where uh, uh, online literacy is part of elementary school education and on up from there. Scandinavian countries have done this for some years. There's been some social science on it and it's been found to be somewhat effective. Um, you know, Scandinavian countries are a, a lot more homogeneous than the United States is, uh, but nevertheless, that's the one place where this has been tried out systematically. So if literacy education uh, sounds appealing, people should look at some of that research. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And actually uh, another question was about uh, is protecting youth. And I do think, I think we assume because people, because young people are young, that they are like, they understand the internet. And I don't think anybody, you know, it's understanding the internet is hard, understanding the water into which you're jumping. And, and you think, oh, that was made for me. Well, no, it wasn't made for you, actually. It was made for you as a consumer, but it's not made for you. So understanding into the, you know, these are these can be life-giving or dangerous waters. And, and we have to let people know um, what, they're, what they're jumping into. Um, okay, what gives you hope right now? I mean, we're having this conversation and more and more we're seeing this conversation at all levels, not just with, you know, folks that are deeply entrenched in the technology policy space and not just with industry folks. I think that is hugely important. It's showing that we're getting smarter as a community and that we're not going to put up with the way the status quo. And so that gives me hope. Um, I think that you know, I, I also hope to see increased self and government regulation um, because I think that we need it. But these conversations are truly, um, you know, heartening and inspiring to me to continue the work that we're all doing. Um, what gives me hope is that after a very sustained online, mostly social media related campaign to um, continue to amplify election denialism, um, the forces of darkness were um, pushed back in our recent midterm 
elections. And people actually woke up, got off the couch, and voted um, for candidates who were not claiming that all elections in the United States are rigged. That's a significant event. Um, and um, we have to do again what was done um, in, the, in the lead up to the midterms, which is to say, put a lot of attention on these ideas and how they spread. I think it had an effect. If anything gives me hope, it's, I mean, maybe it's cliche, but it's the youth of our generation. I think that Gen Z, I'm a dignified elderly millennial. <laughs> I think uh, I think Gen Z really, um, the ways in which they're engaging with the technology. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot more harms than there ever have been before. But also this generation is so much more savvy and understanding and empathetic in ways that they've never been before. And they understand things like intersectionality so much more intrinsically than I think even my generation did. They understand that if you're experiencing hate for because of one community that you come from, chances are there's other folks just like you from other communities that are also experiencing that same hate from the same nexus. And they, they're coming up with tools themselves to confront that hate together. And that makes me feel really good. I mean, I think that, you know, we were talking about Discord earlier. Discord for certain, you know, provides uh, spaces for hateful folks to, to gather. It also provides a great um, space for uh, people that are uh, working on social justice issues and confronting hate. Um, Discord has a very interesting community policy uh, in their approach to how they do content moderation. It's a lot more what you might consider to be democratic. Sometimes it works super well. Um, and sometimes youth are able to use uh, Discord's very specific community guidelines to really um, self-regulate, self-moderate in a way that's very healthy. Um, and so, you know, I think young people are truly the ones that uh, understand how to uh, hold power accountable. They understand, they don't take for granted the same old kind of uh, corporate uh, lines that have worked on previous generations. And for that reason, I, I do continue to have hope in spite of all the dark clouds that seem to be gathering above us. This was such an important and timely conversation, and we've got lots more planned for the months ahead. Stay up to date on future webinars and other events by signing up for email updates at interfaithalliance.org. We need to take one last break, and then Ria Coley is back with a look at the new report, Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Find out more about State of Belief and Interfaith Alliance at stateofbelief.com. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. My goodness, is that... What's that spinning sound I hear? Is that them spinning on a dime? That this is now that the classified documents have been found in fences. It's once again totally different. Mm -hmm. and totally not, different. Not like the horrible crime that Biden no. committed. Right. Right. Once again, it's no big deal like what Trump did. Spinning, spinning, Mike spinning. Pence is up. Oh, pardon me. Oh, I had to guess the quote for you. Oh, oh, Who oh. said this? Mike Pence is up to his albino eyebrows in this. Sean Comiskey. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> Got it right. Sean, once again, uh -huh. is right. Um, wow, they just spun on a dime on this story, didn't they? So, a small number of classified documents were discovered. Uh, it is hilarious, right? Oh. Watching them twist into pretzels. How once again, this is not really a big deal. Except for yeah. Dr. Carlson last night. Oh, what did, what did Tuckums say? Oh, Tuckums is, oh, Mike Pence, the what do you call him? Call him flamboyantly, yeah. uh, flamboyantly pure Mike Pence. 
is being used by the feds to get Trump on the combat right. docks because now it because makes Trump look bad because he's the only one who didn't right. do like Pence did it just like Biden did it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, but Trump didn't. I, right. it, it's really but hard to follow. Sure. It, 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 huh? Yeah. Ted Cruz went back and forth. Yes. Last night, it within thirty seconds. A lot of tap dancing. Oh yes. my goodness. Oh. Um. Yeah. Pence's lawyer said the documents were discovered uh, January 16th after Pence asked outside counsel to look for uh, records bearing classified markings following the news about President Biden's Was that before or after he said that uh, President Biden was wrong? Didn't Mike Pence go on TV and open his big gap? Oh, yeah. Open his little pie hole oh, yeah. about uh, oh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Oh, blah, yeah. Biden, oh, yeah. something sanctimonious, chuckly sad Santa. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 Find The Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. You've got us 24 hours a day on your mobile smartphone via the Progressive Voices app. This is the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. You're listening to State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to State of Belief Radio. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. The expert conversation you've heard on today's show was part of the release of the new Interfaith Alliance report titled Big Tech, Hate, and Religious Freedom Online. Advocacy associate Rhea Coley led this project, and as promised, she's back with some highlights. Rhea, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. Thank you. What does the report offer as something to hang on to for people who may not be professionals in this area, they just want to change something in their community or in their own life. What does the report offer for someone who, so that people who are going to download it have something to look forward to, some sort of hope? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the report lays out, you know, sort of policy proposals in three different areas. We talked about regulating big tech and, you know, what platforms themselves can do. But I think to your point, something that communities and um, communities can really do is focus on social media literacy. Um, this basically means that people online should be equipped with the tools to recognize misinformation, hateful content, and understand that there are factors outside of just people posting horrible things that influence them seeing that. Um, and I think from there, just being a more educated person um, online can really help people understand you know, what they're reposting, what they're reading, what kind of impact it's having on their community and other communities. So I think social media literacy is really something that I think we need to have a a national conversation about, but also locally in communities. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I brought up, it just, it seems like we assume that young people especially know how to do everything. And I think that it's really important for young people themselves, you know, they, they have a lot of wisdom and, and, to bring their their full selves to this question about what am I like <clears throat> for young people to bring to the question of social media? What am I liking? What am I promoting? How am I um, showing up for people who I see being attacked in front of me? I mean, so you know, some of the opportunities are to show solidarity when you see someone being attacked for who they are. Maybe just say, "Hey, I see you, and I and I want you to know that I'm I'm with you, even as you're getting attacked." And you know, I just think that there's opportunities. So uh, my hope is that everyone listening will go to interfaithalliance.org 
and you will be able to find the report and download it and share it with your community. It's really one of the wonderful things about this report is that it is easy to read while addressing complex issues. Any advice for someone who is about to download it and where they might be able to use it best in their life? Yeah, I think the primary way this report can impact listeners is just by understanding the tech industry a little bit more and understanding what their social media presence means um, in the grand scope of this industry. Um, and I just want to I just want to mention like a specific example that hopefully helps people contextualize how how like simple things like a tweet can impact their whole lives. Um, you know, in the panel, uh, Paul Barrett made the point that as the economics of the tech industry change, you know, we're seeing mass layoffs from tech giants like Google and Microsoft. And he said that the first jobs to go, which we've seen is going to be in the content moderation areas, and that's already happened. And a specific example that I would point people to is that a Hindu nationalist in India tweeted about an interfaith wedding and basically mobilized so many people around this propaganda that the bride and groom and their families were harassed with phone calls and really scary threats, and they had to call off the wedding (laughs) because the staff for content moderation and hate speech in all of Asia had basically all been fired. And this Hindu and Muslim couple were victims of this insane flurry of activity around a conspiracy theory because nobody was there at Twitter to get the tweet pulled down. And this is this is this couple's life, <laughs> you know? Oh my God. That I had not heard that story. That is horrific. It is a perfect example of the power of the internet to do good. You could you could just as easily use your power to do good. Instead, they used it to promote hate and destroyed a couple's lives, the opportunity for them to have love. This is what we're talking about. This is what's at stake. This is a religious freedom issue for people to be who they want to be, love who they want to love. I mean, this is, you know, that's like a perfect example for why this is so important and why everybody needs to be paying attention to this and get smart about it, get aware about it and contribute in whatever way you can to finding solutions to this. One of the things we spend some time talking about is how engagement is really the driving force behind how platforms lift up and suppress content. And it's not difficult to imagine that algorithms have picked up on the fact that hateful posts or quote unquote controversial things get a lot more engagement than others. So even if you're sharing something that you disagree with, and I think Lauren made the point on the panel yesterday, it still gets seen by a lot of people and the algorithm recognizes the content as something that keep people on and engaged with the platform even longer, which I think can be pretty easily applied to that example of the couple in India. Rhea, thank you so much for all your work on this and bringing this to more people's attention. And we really appreciate it at Interfaith Alliance and State of Belief. Thank you. Thanks for having me. To download this report on big tech hate and religious freedom online, go to interfaithalliance.org. It is free and available to you. We hope you will download it and share it with the people in your life. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this sweet show. We need your help keeping this show on the air. 
I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. You can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. We'll get the latest on the state of Christian nationalism and the new Congress from journalist Catherine Stewart, author of The Power Worshippers. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and that's State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.